You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rahim, and Bana. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parosh, 2,172. The sons of Sheftiah, 372. The whole assembly together was 42,360. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736. Their mules were 245. Their camels were 435. And their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of families when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 darics of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, 
and all the rest of Israel in their towns. Well, last week, uh, I read a book about Cyclone Tracy by the author Sophie Cunningham. On December the 24th, 1974, Christmas Eve, uh, Cyclone Tracy hit Australia's northernmost city. Uh, The region is, of course, prone to tropical cyclones, but this was something altogether different. Uh, Wind gusts of up to 250, 275 kilometres an hour. And you can actually find a recording of this on YouTube. And it's just horrible to listen to. The the wind is just so violent. And actually, there was a whole bunch of corrugated iron that was just being swept through the city. And someone described it as like fingernails being dragged down a chalkboard. Uh, The force of the wind did extraordinary things, extraordinary damage. There were uh, cockatoos had their feathers just uh, blown off. Now, petrol was sucked out of petrol cans, uh, tanks and uh, air out of car tyres and houses, it was said, rocked like boats at sea. One man who was stuck out in the open had to tie himself to a pillar to make sure he didn't uh, fly away and others uh, spoke of caravans just kind of blowing over the road. Uh, there's a famous photo of a hotel pool where there's a couple of cars that have been blown into the pool. Uh, the destruction was complete. About 70% of the houses were destroyed completely. Uh, Cunningham says walls are described as melting. And one man describes being sucked out of his roofless house as if he was uh, riding a magic carpet. Shards of broken glass swirled around rooms as if in a giant blender. Officially, 71 people died and 163 were stated as missing. But it's actually thought that those numbers could probably be much higher. And when you look at the photos of the aftermath, It looks like the whole city has been bombed. Everything is gone. Uh, Fearing disease, a massive operation was undertaken to airlift people out, uh, leaving just a quarter of the population left. There's about 47,000 people who lived in the city, and within about five days, there was only 10,000 left. Some people returned to try and rebuild the city, but 15,000 stayed in exile, trying to rebuild their lives. Those who did return faced the daunting task of rebuilding, of starting from scratch to do this work. And after I read this book, I realised that this feels very similar to this moment in the Bible. See, today we begin this new series looking at the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, a book that comes after a great storm has gone through in God's people The history of God's people, of Israel, begins effectively with Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, uh, God comes to Abraham, a a man who's about to be called Abraham, and he gives these spectacular promises. Genesis 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonours you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, these promises really define the identity of God's people and shape their direction. First of all, they're God's people. God will take this family of Abraham and make it a great nation, his chosen people, his treasured possession. God will give them a land, a land flowing with milk and honey that he's reserved for them. He's now going to take them to it and give it to them. And when they get there, they'll be able to live under God's rule. He'll give them his law that reflects his character and shows them how to live. And if they do that, they'll be a light to the nations. They'll be a blessing to all people. People will be drawn to them to see the God of Israel. So here we have this vision of God's people living in God's land 
under God's rule. And as you read through the first half of the Old Testament, you see those promises start to come true. But then also, you see them lose all the blessings that God gives them. Uh, So uh, Israel became a great kingdom under a guy called King David and then his son Solomon. They were militarily powerful and uh, became very wealthy. David was given these great promises. God said, I'm going to raise up after you. Someone in your line will rule this people forever. Your kingdom will be established forever. And then under Solomon, they were able to build the temple, God's house, where they were able to meet with God and offer sacrifices and worship him. It was was an incredible situation that they had. But then it all started to fracture. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was a headstrong, contemptuous kind of guy. And he starts this fight with some other people. And it ends up splitting the kingdom. A civil war happens. And so God's people are split into two nations, Israel in the north and then the tribe of Judah down in the south. And then the fortunes of Israel and Judah kind of shape and go up and down depending on whoever's in charge. And in Israel, they had a succession of terrible kings. If you read through the books of Kings and Chronicles, You'll see that uh, after each king, it basically says, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so eventually God kind of, God warns them and says, look, if you keep doing this, I'm going to have to throw you out of the land. But they keep ignoring him until ultimately they lose everything. 2 Kings 17, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. So they're taken off into exile. But Judah would actually follow 150 years later. They had better kings generally, but they still had some bad kings as well. And the same pattern repeated where they continually disobeyed God. God sent warnings and messengers, his prophets, to say, come on, come back, come back. They ignored that until God ultimately followed through on what he had warned them. 2 Chronicles 36, Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or age. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon." And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to to his sons. Everything is gone. It is a total defeat. The land, the precious land that God had saved and provided for them has been overrun. The temple... God's house has been desecrated and destroyed. And now the people have been decimated and carted off into exile. The storm, the cyclone of God's judgment has swept through God's people and everything is gone. And yet, even now, hope can be found. You see, as you read through these passages, we actually discover that even as God is warning them and announcing his judgment on them, he also announces his mercy. Because he says to them, yes, you're going to go off into exile, but it's only going to be for 70 years, and then I'm going to bring you home. And that's actually where Ezra picks up the story. Ezra and Nehemiah are two books, but really they're one book, and they cover a period of about 100 years, 
where God brings his people back to the land. At the start of Ezra, the first half of Ezra, we meet this guy called Zerubbabel who leads the first group of God's people back to uh, God's people to the land and they rebuild the temple. We'll see that in the next couple of weeks. Then after that, Ezra himself comes, Ezra chapter 7, and he starts to rebuild the law, re- recreate the worship culture of the, of the people. And then a bloke called Nehemiah comes along and he starts to rebuild the walls of the city and the city itself. This is what God is doing through all of this stuff. He's rebuilding his people in the land under his rule. And today, as we kind of get into this book, I want to pick up a big concept, really just for today. I want us to understand that throughout this story, we're going to see that God works. God works for his people and in his people. First of all, God is working for his people. See, at first glance, when you look at Ezra 1, it looks like someone else is behind all of this. Uh, We see uh, that in verse 2, Cyrus, king of Persia, announces that he's going to send people back. Uh, In verse 1, it's a proclamation that he puts in writing and he sends out throughout all of his kingdom, saying to all the people that they can head back home to Judah. And then he even gives them the the vessels of gold that they'd been given and all of this stuff in verse 7, and he sends them all back. And it, it looks like this extraordinary moment where this foreign king is doing all of this stuff, that he is behind all of this. It's actually a little bit more complicated than that. This guy Cyrus is a a fascinating bloke. He's also known as Cyrus the Great. He's still remembered as a great hero by Iranian people. And he uh, ruled for about 30 years. And under his leadership, the Persian Empire became one of the greatest empires of the ancient world. An empire so big that it spread from what we know as Turkey today through Iraq and Iran, uh, all the way across to India, and then up to Turkmenistan uh, in the north to the kind of old Soviet republics. So this was a massive empire. And as part of it, he had taken control of God's people. He'd beaten Babylon, and now God's people were under his rule. And this whole approach, because his empire was so big, he actually had to find a way to rule it all. And so what he's doing here is actually a political move. Uh, Because this, this empire was so enormous, what they would tend to do is they would send a local leader back to their, their homeland, and then they could manage the, that people. They could kind of reinstitute their culture and all of those things. They'd still be under his supervision, but it was, this was how he could manage his empire. So it's political, but there's also a spiritual sense that of a spiritual motivation here as well. See, back in this time, each nation had their own gods. So the Persians, for instance, had the great god Marduk and a whole bunch of a family of gods around that. And what they would tend to think was that each god kind of belonged to a certain postcode, so to speak. And so if you entered into a certain country, there were the gods of that country. And so Cyrus here, for instance, speaks of the god of Israel. He is the god who is in Jerusalem. So he sort of imagines that when you're in Jerusalem, you're under Yahweh, the Jewish god. But he also kind of figures that each of these gods are now on his side. That as you defeat each country, you kind of inherit their gods. And so he probably imagines that Yahweh, the God of Israel, had given him this victory. And he's now on his side. And so he imagines that all of this, he is the boss here. He gets to decide stuff. All the gods are supporting him. And that's why he's confident here that he's in control. But we can actually see all of this from a different angle. See, this passage makes it really clear it's not Cyrus or Marduk, some other God who's in control. It's the one true God. 
Look at verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. It's God who's doing this. It's the Lord who stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. And this is all part of God's long-term plan. It happens because the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. And actually, when you look at the prophecies of Jeremiah, it is spooky how accurate they are. So in Jeremiah 25, this is long before the exile happens. He says, the whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So he's warning them against their disobedience. You're going to go into exile, but you're also going to come back. And it's not just Jeremiah. The prophet Isaiah would say similar things, and he would also speak specifically about Cyrus. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. God is in control. See, when we read this passage, it starts with the proclamation by Cyrus, but behind that is the promise of God. The word of God is directing all of this. He is the one who is in control. He's moving all of these things. He's moving Cyrus himself. Proverbs 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God is in control. God is working, and he's working for his people. See, I want you to see the character of God here. Just think about it. God's people have continually disobeyed him. They've gone against what he said, gone against his his warnings. They've ignored his warnings again and again. And now the consequences of that have come to them. And still, God wants to show them mercy. The heart of God bends towards mercy and grace. And even when there's judgment, he wants to keep it as small as possible because he wants to bring them back. And he has this beautiful future and a vision for them. Jeremiah 29, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. You're probably familiar with that verse. It's a very popular verse. Here, look at the original context. Here, we have this moment where God's people have lost everything and still God wants to give them a future and a hope. God is always working for his people. And secondly, we see here that God is working in his people. You see, this great proclamation goes out. Cyrus tells people all over the nation, right, you can go home to, to, to your homeland. But they still have to take him up on that offer. They still have to step out and head back home. Now, that kind of might seem a bit obvious. Like, why wouldn't you want to? I think in my mind, I'd imagine that when God's people were in Babylon, it was very similar to what it was like in Egypt. When you read the stories of uh, Exodus, you see God's people enslaved in Egypt and they're desperate to, to get out of there. I kind of figured it was the same. But actually, it was quite different to that. They'd managed to build a life for themselves here. Uh, in Jeremiah 29, we get an insight that they have some level of freedom. They're able to build houses, plant gardens, uh, to marry and start families. They were, some of them were given leadership positions within the Babylonian structure. So you look at the, the book of Daniel and you find these young guys who are kind of identified and they're built up and they're given wealth and possibilities and opportunities. And actually, God had encouraged his people to make their home in this time. Jeremiah 29, seek the welfare of the city where I sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. 
So they're kind of bedded down. And it might have been easy for them to just stay there. To think this is actually okay. It's not perfect, but it's all right. Because to leave this exile, to leave Babylon, is to step into the unknown. To go to a place that was destroyed. To start from scratch. As I said, it was really hard for people to come back to Darwin. 15,000 people didn't go back. That's a third of the city. They didn't go back. And those who did had to step into the unknown to build from nothing. It's really hard for them to do that. And so here we are invited to see the courage of those Israelites who did go home. Robert File writes, Only a real sense of spiritual priority would have moved even some of the people to return. And I think that's one of the reasons why we have chapter 2. Uh, it would be easy to skip over chapter 2. In fact, we kind of did. Uh, in, in our Bible reading, you might have noticed that we started it and went all quiet for a little bit, and then it came back in 60 verses later. Uh, that, that, that was deliberate. It wasn't a, a sound glitch. It's hard to read through those long lists of names. But why are they there? Well, it's to honour those people who had the courage to step out and to go home, to rebuild God wants us to acknowledge them. Those 42,360 people, they had the courage to do it. And I want you to see, though, who is working, how it's described. Verse 5, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So just as God had stirred the spirit of Cyrus, this foreign king, so God stirred the spirit of his own people to lead them back home to do this great work. And actually, there's some wonderful stuff that we see God is doing in his people through chapter 2. See, actually, when you look at the names, at first it just feels like a big phone book, but the stuff that is being told here, it's the things that God is showing us here about what he's doing in his people. First of all, you see that he's actually trying to rebuild their identity. You'll notice that they're named after their, 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 by their families. So verse 3, the sons of Parosh, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Ara, Or they're named by their hometown, the sons of Bethlehem, the men of Natopha, the men of Anathoth, etc. What's going on here? Well, it's to give these people a context, an identity. Uh, you might have seen that TV show, uh, Who Do You Think You Are? It's on SBS, I think. It's basically a family history show where they get a, a celebrity and they say, right, we're going to walk you through your family history. Here's where your family, their stories, here's your great, great, great uh, grandparent, here's what they were like, here's where they lived, they take them to that place. What are they trying to do? They're trying to give them a context, help them understand their place in the story, their identity. I think that's what's happening here too. God wants his people to go home to their hometowns, to rebuild those places, to rediscover who they are. God is rebuilding their identity. The other thing that I notice in these lists is the importance given to worship. So in verse 36, we're told about the priests. Verse 40, we hear about the Levites. Then the temple servants from verse 43. This shows that God's people are seeking to prioritise the right thing, the worship of God. And this is crucial. This is how things went wrong the first time around. They neglected the right worship of God and everything fell because of that. They deteriorated because of that. And so now as they return home, they're trying to get the basic stuff right. They're trying to prioritise the right thing. This is to their credit. 
But there's also this really sad kind of uh, indication of their past. See, when the priests are mentioned, they're told that they're kind of broken down into four families, the sons of Jediah, the sons of Immer, Pasha and Harim. Now, originally, when the priesthood was set up, there were 24 families. And so something has happened to 20 of these families. Somewhere along the line, 20 of these families died out. They were lost. They were killed. And so we're reminded here of the reality of what's happened to God's people. That they lost their way. That they sinned, and this was the consequence of it. And yet even here, we continue to see the thread of God's promises. See, every person in Ezra chapter 2 is found in God's promises. All of them can trace their way back to Abraham, the father of Israel. A whole bunch of them can also find their lineage all the way back to David, the the great king, the one who God said uh, from him would come, the king who would rescue and rule his people forever. And so even in this story, they're, they're being invited to look through God's promises and to see the thread, the strength of God's promises through all things. Takes a rubber ball. He's mentioned in verse 2. He can be traced all the way back to Abraham. His family has always been part of Israel. He's also uh, part of the line of David. He was the grandson of Jehoiachin, the king who was in power when Judah was exiled. And... So when they look at Zerubbabel, they're invited to look back, but they're also invited to look forward. God had said that he would raise up an ancestor, a descendant of David who would rule and rescue his people. And so when they look at Zerubbabel, they see backwards, but they also see towards the Saviour. You see, we actually find Zerubbabel in another list of names. In Matthew chapter 1, we have the genealogy of Jesus. And right there in the middle... Is the rubber ball. See how God is working in and for his people. So, rubber ball is a sign that the promises God made all the way back here and the way he strengthened his people through David is now pointing towards how he will save his people through Jesus. When Jerusalem fell and God's people went off into exile, it must have seemed like everything was lost. And nothing could be recovered. But in these names, we see that God's promises are holding firm. That he can be relied on. And that's a message for us too. The God who makes promises keeps promises. And he keeps them for us as well. So thirdly, God, I want us to see that God works in and for his people today as well. See, it would be easy for us to imagine that, that we're in a place of darkness. But this is a time either of exile or of rebuilding for God's people. The church in Australia is in decline. A portion of Australians identifying as Christians has declined dramatically over the last century. 96% in 1911 and only 61% a century later. Church attendance has more than halved in the last 50 years. Uh, And this is something seen in much of the Western world. Uh, 20 years ago, 70% of Americans said that they belonged to a church. That number was down to 47% in 2020. And I think the last couple of years has probably accelerated this decline. In so much of uh, the world, churches have been locked down and it's been really hard for lots of churches to get people back. 
It's also clear more broadly that we are in a post-Christian age. This is the age of Christendom has, has gone. There's no new cathedrals being built. The Christian biblical values that have underpinned our society are either attacked or ignored or undermined. And as we saw in the book of 1 Peter, God's people can feel like they're exiles. They've kind of been pushed to the fringes of our culture and our society simply because of what we believe and how we live. And in fact, for some people, it might even feel like we're exiles within the church. Uh, See, in every age, there's always been pastors, theologians and so on who have uh, resisted the truth about God. They've kind of rejected things like the, the resurrection, denied the supernatural. And sometimes it feels like it's even more pervasive that everyone's just trying to fit in with the world around us and and speak what the culture is saying. I recently saw something the other day of a bishop in Sweden who's advocated for the removal of crosses in churches to create space for Muslim worship spaces. Like, that doesn't make sense, right? So it can feel like, as God's people, we might feel like we're exiles within the church, that this is a dark moment and we don't know where the hope can be found. But this is the moment where God always works. Whenever it's dark, he wants us to see the light, to see what he is doing. See, in Ezra, God revived his people with his promises. He promised that he would bring them back from exile and he fulfilled that promise. And the same, kind of, the same God makes promises to us that he will fulfill. Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. See, God has this vision for his people, this glorious, beautiful vision. Revelation 7, he envisages a great multitude uh, that no one can number from every tribe, from all uh, tongues and peoples and languages. This is his promise and it will happen. In fact, it's starting to happen. See, we might feel like... uh, We're in the Western world that everything is post-Christian, but actually the rest of the world is becoming Christian. At least 70% of Christians around the world now live outside the West. West. There's more Presbyterians now in in Ghana than in the US and the UK. There's more Anglicans in Nigeria than in those countries. And even secularism, the, the, world, the, the thinking pattern, the, the worldview that kind of dominates everything that we're around, that's actually on the decline globally. God is already moving. And he can move here too, among us, if we respond to his stirring. See, the God who stirred the spirit of Cyrus and stirred the spirit of his people can also stir us. He wants to revive us. He wants to do a great work in and through us, in this city, in this nation, in this world, if we will respond to it. Uh, Mark Sayers is an Australian writer who's written a couple of excellent books, uh, Disappearing Church and Reappearing Church. It's good that there's a sequel. Um, In the first, he he charts the decline of the church, its diminished influence, its apparent irrelevance, its fragility. Uh, And then in the second, he offers a vision for its revival, for its rebuilding, a real message of hope. But crucially, it starts in a place of darkness. It starts with us and in the darkness of conviction and repentance, the recognition that there's problems in our own lives and in our own hearts. That's where it starts. See, we can talk about 
the desire for renewal all around the world and out there, but actually that renewal starts here in the church and it starts here in our lives, in our hearts. See, we're going to, as we go through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we're going to see this dynamic of God continuing to give his promises and people trying to receive that and respond to that and renew their obedience. But we're also going to see that they're continually going to stuff up in really weird and terrible ways. We're going to see that even these guys who are so determined to do the right thing fail to do it because that's what humans always do. That's what we do. So renewal begins, though, with an acknowledgement of that and then an experience of God's grace. Because the other thing God wants us to know is in the darkness, as we feel that conviction and reality of our sin, he wants to shine the light of his forgiveness and his love. That this is the God who still wants to give mercy, who still wants to forgive, who whenever we entrust ourselves to Jesus, anyone who will do that will know his love, will know his grace. That's where it all begins. The rebuilding begins with our experience of God's love. And then we go out with that to shine the light of that like a city on a hill that displays his glory to everyone around us. God is still the God of promises, the God who makes promises and keeps them. And anyone who comes to him will be part of his people and part of his work. See, so there's another awesome listed names in the Bible. It's probably my favourite. It comes right at the end in Revelation 21. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And in it are the names of everyone who's confessed their sin to him, received Jesus' forgiveness, trusted themselves to him, and found new life, a new life to step out into the world with. Because God works for his people and in his people to keep his promises. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this new book that we're studying together. We thank you that it invites us to see your goodness and your grace. You are the God who made promises to Abraham that established your people. You are the God who made promises to David to strengthen your people. And you are the God who fulfilled those promises through Jesus to save your people. Lord, I pray that we might be part of your rebuilding that we might feel our sin and come to, it with, to, come to you with it, that we might receive the grace that is on offer as we entrust ourselves to Jesus, and then that we might be a part of your building in this world, in this city. Thank you, Lord God, that you are a kind and a merciful God who loves to give grace. May we know the immeasurable power of your greatness to those who believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.